it's simply this. Workers needed. And I want to simply to look at a few verses in the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, will you turn to that? If you haven't got one, uh, lean over, grab one, uh, turn to the Bible. It's page 974. Page 974. Someone pass one to Graham down here. He's looking for one. Well done, Graham. That's good. Thank you. Anyone else need one? You all got a Bible? And this is the record of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, let me try and focus on that this evening. I'm very grateful to Ali, who put up the PowerPoint in the half an hour before the service, because we obviously didn't have anything prepared. So I hope that will be helpful as well. One of the major problems which nearly every country in the world faces today is unemployment. Too many workers, not enough work. In the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, exactly the opposite is true. Too much work, not enough workers. And that was the situation when Jesus was on earth. Matthew tells us in these verses that Jesus looked out at the vast crowds around him and using a familiar image from a society based on agriculture, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And nothing has changed in this respect down the centuries since he spoke these words. In the work of God's kingdom, the desperate need is for workers. The Greek word translated worker here is that of an ordinary manual labourer. Nothing fancy, the kind of person who is prepared to roll up his or her sleeves and get down to work. Such people, I tell you, are in short supply in our churches. We have plenty of spectators, quite a few critics, and a good number of sermon tasters and pew fillers, but only a small proportion are workers. As many of you will know, for 20 years I worked with the largest missionary organization in the world, Wycliffe Bible Translators. I'm still on the board for Wycliffe. And every month we get churned out a long computer list of countries where workers are needed, of languages where work is needed. And you could reduplicate this into almost any mission situation. And if you ask almost any church you'll find the situation is still the same. Ask any church leader. Just because a church is big does not mean there are no job vacancies. In fact, just the opposite. My thesis is that the bigger the church, the less commitment per capita. And many people come to church that's large because they think I won't get picked on to do anything. And uh, I'm not saying that everyone feels that way, but many people do come to larger churches for that reason. But what I want to address this evening is, how can the job vacancies be filled? If this were a human enterprise, I suppose we'd launch a mass recruitment campaign. Or launch a skilled training program. 
or prepare a new strategy document. And some churches and Christian organizations have done this with greater or lesser success. Others attempt to persuade people by making them feel either guilty or at the opposite extreme, making them feel needed and enthused. And while all these things may be helpful and have their right place, I believe there are other essentials which precede such programs. If we are to reap the harvest effectively in God's way, and I simply want to suggest to you very simply this evening, that if you look at these verses in Matthew and the example of Jesus, I would suggest there are three essentials, three priorities, if we are to gain the workers we need and if the harvest is to be reaped. Okay, here's the first. It's what I want to call vision. If you want a definition of vision, vision is what Jesus saw. Look again what it says there. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were... I'm never sure in Scotland people say harassed or harassed, but you know what it means anyway. I'll stick with harassed. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the word translated see there has a wider range of meaning than just observing with your eyes. It can refer to all the senses and so mean to perceive something, to know something, to examine, to see the true state of things as they really are. And I want to use vision to cover that meaning. What is vision? It is seeing things as they really are. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, on earth is unique in this respect. He sees things as they really are. He is the only one who sees things as they really are. Everyone else suffers from blindness to a greater or lesser degree, a blindness caused by our sinful nature. Let me give you an example. H.G. Wells, famous for his science fiction stories, also wrote short stories, and I've got a book of them. And one of my favourites is called The Country of the Blind. It's an amazing story, short story. If you go to the library, you can get it out for yourself, but let me summarise it. It's a story about a party of men who are travelling in the high Andes mountains. One of them is separated from his companions and eventually, in a state of exhaustion near to death, stumbles into a beautiful and fertile valley. He discovers that this valley is inhabited by a remarkable community of people who are unique in one particular respect. Every one of them is blind through a genetic defect passed down through the generations. Of course, they have learnt to adapt admirably to their limitation. They've even forgotten, in fact, what eyesight is. They have a well-developed, non-visual cosmology and understanding of the word. They've lost all memory of what sight is. Anyway, to cut a short story short, um, the young man falls in love with one of the girls in the community and he wishes to marry her. And so he goes to the leaders and asks for permission. And the leaders confer together and they give their consent. Yes, they say, we are happy for you to marry this young lady on one condition. We would like you to submit to a small operation to remove these troublesome things you call eyes, which are disturbing everyone with your nonsensical talk about things like you, that you call the sun, the moon and the stars. Faced with such a terrible choice, the young man flees for his life back to civilization. You see, contrary to popular opinion, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is not king. He's killed. 
And so it is with Jesus. So it was with Jesus. He saw things very differently, which in the end contributed to his death. And here in this passage, Jesus sees these vast crowds following him. Everybody saw the crowds. The disciples saw the crowds. But Jesus saw them differently. He saw the crowds, and it says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Very telling description. You see, the Bible tells us that we are like sheep. We are made for a shepherd. We are made to be led. We need someone to guide us and watch over us. We are made for the Lord, who David describes as his shepherd in the most familiar psalm of all, Psalm 23. And yet the prophet Isaiah says, in Isaiah 53, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the result is that people are in great need. And Jesus looks out over this vast crowd and he doesn't just see a crowd. He sees as they really are. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And secondly, he sees them as harassed and helpless. The word harassed means weak and feebled, faint-hearted. The result is that they are helpless, scattered all around with nowhere to go, no one to turn to, pitiful and vulnerable. Now, the first question is this. If you want to be a worker in God's kingdom, how's your eyesight? Do you see? One of the sure signs when you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit gives you a new nature in Christ, is that your eyesight begins to improve in all areas. You begin to see Jesus differently. And then through that you begin to see other people differently. It's the most interesting study, we don't have time to go into it all, but it's interesting to think about the Apostle Paul, who became a great missionary in this respect, Saul of Tarsus, persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. One day on the famous road to Damascus, he was struck down by a bright light from heaven and he saw for the first time, well he heard a voice and he said, who are you Lord? And the voice said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He was struck blind but for the first time he could see who Jesus really was and it transformed his life. And a man called Ananias had to come round to his home directed by the Spirit and give him back his physical eyesight. But it changed everything about the way he saw things. And so writing to the Christians in Corinth, he makes this point. This is what he says. So from now on we regard, and the word in Greek is the same word as see here. From now on we see no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once saw Christ, regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation... The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. Now, if we're to find workers for the Lord's harvest field, we need people with good eyesight. Who see things as they really are. You see, it's possible to be deceived by appearances. Your self-sufficient, capable neighbour is a sheep without a shepherd. The boss that you work for, who seems to have everything going for him, is a sheep without a shepherd. You and I are sheep without a shepherd. As is the guy selling the big issue as you cross Princess Street and the guy down the road with the dog in the street in the doorway who's begging for help. Ah, that looks obvious, doesn't it? But all people are sheep without a shepherd. And only when you see that will you see that there's a harvest there. A harvest of needy people. Because the reverse is also true. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Only if you know that and believe that through Christ, people's lives can be turned around. Will you keep on with the work of sowing, weeding, caring, maintenance, even when it's snowing in Scotland? Only then are we effective workers. Only then can we hope to reap a harvest. It's a costly, demanding work. And unless you really see that, you'll give up. You'll say, oh, that friend of mine's hopeless. No chance. The psalmist puts it beautifully, one of my favourite psalms, Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. So the first requirement on the job application for workers in God's kingdom is vision. Those with bad eyesight need not apply. But notice the second thing that flows from it. Not just vision, what Jesus saw, but secondly, compassion, what Jesus felt. Notice what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, if vision is to do with perception and understanding, then compassion, which flows from it, is to do with emotion. The verb in Greek is a very strong word. In Greek, you don't live with your heart, you live with your bowels. Which might seem rather strange, but <laughs> that's what the word means. It's a deep sort of, um, what's the word? Visceral, isn't it? That's the word, I think. It's a gut feeling. They were regarded as the seat of emotion in the ancient world. Now, this word compassion is a word that's frequently used of Jesus in his ministry. Jesus is moved with compassion by sickness and suffering. A couple of references you can look up if you're making notes. He's moved with compassion by death. When he sees hungry people, sad people, sick people, demon-possessed people, bereaved people, he is not some impassive Buddha-like God who stands over them and says that's just the way things are. No, he is moved with compassion. It is the word used of the father who sees the prodigal running down the road, crawling down the road, and the father has compassion on him. And he runs down the road and flings his arms around him and welcomes him home. It's the word used in the parable Jesus used about the good Samaritan. Not the other two guys who passed by on the other side. They weren't moved at all. They just moved on. But the Samaritan, when he saw the man lying by the road, he was moved with compassion and he stopped and he helped him. Now, I simply want to say it is Jesus who is our role model in this respect. It is Jesus, not the archetypal British stiff upper lip. Shortest verse in the Bible, it's down there. One we learnt in Sunday school when we got prizes. Learn all the short verses. This is the shortest. John 11:35. Jesus wept. It's an interesting word. When you read it, you think, oh, well, I bet Jesus was there at the grave of his friend Lazarus who died. And we read that when Jesus came, it simply says, Jesus wept. And you think, oh yeah, he just dabbed the corner of his eye with a handkerchief, you know, because he was a bit moved by this. No, the Greek means he burst into tears and sobbed at the grave of his friend because he died because that's the effect that death had not just because he was his friend but because death is an intruder in our world as is sickness and all the terrible things that we see on our news screens no wonder then that Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is troubled as he faces the terrible cup of, God, of God's wrath 
he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. He's deeply moved by sin and all its consequences. So the book of Hebrews tells us we don't have some high priest who's unable to be unable to feel what we're feeling. No, he's touched with our infirmities. He's tempted in every way as we are. He's moved. That's amazingly encouraging, isn't it? I mean, who knows what if we if we were to put on the screen this evening, just the people in this room. The, the kind of suffering that we've gone through in our lives, and even some of us are facing now, and the things that cause us so much pain, and we wonder, does anyone care? And here's a wonderful thing. Jesus cares. He's moved with compassion. Now the question for us, if we've experienced that deep, passionate compassion of Christ, is do we who have the mind of Christ have the compassion of Christ? One of the great dangers is we become blasé about people and their eternal state. It's so easy to fail to see and fail to be moved. Here's the second question. Then the first one is, do we see? The second question is, do we care? I still remember the first time I visited Howrah Railway Station in Calcutta, which was, and I suspect still is, a seething mass of humanity. It's way back in 1972. And I stood on the platform there, and a friend and I were stood there waiting for a train, and we brought a little tub each of ice cream, you know, the ones with the little spoons? And we ate the ice cream in the tub. Then we looked round for a rubbish bin, and there wasn't one. And everyone else seemed to do with the rubbish was to throw it on the railway line as we stood at the platform, we threw it on the line. I can still picture six little beggar boys leaping on the line and fighting over this tub so they could lick out the scraps that were laying in the bottom of it. But I tell you this, six months later in that same city, I could walk past the torso on a pavement with no arms and no legs and hardly be moved at all. What happened? Well, I just became blasé about it. Now, I tell you this, indifference to the eternal state of the lost is a far more serious malaise. It's surely significant to notice, uh, in passing really, that two of the big theological issues in the evangelical world, that's the world of the people who believe the Bible is the word of God, two of the biggest issues are this. Are the lost eternally lost? And are the lost, especially those who've never heard, really lost? Now, they're complex questions. But I feel that the driving force behind them is that we've lost touch with the reality of the state of lost people. That without Christ, people are without hope, without God in the world. And in our heart of hearts, we no longer believe in hell. And I simply tell you, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He took it so seriously that he went to a cross and suffered the agonies of hell. So you might never have to. So, do we see as Jesus sees? Do we feel as Jesus feels? Vision, compassion. If we do, then there's a third thing that follows. And here's a big surprise. Here's the third thing that follows. Vision, compassion, intercession. What Jesus commanded. Look again what he says. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He's a big surprise, at least to me. At this point, I and most churches, organizations and missions would have a totally different approach. Something like this. You see the great harvest of souls. You are moved with compassion for them. Go, therefore, here am I, Lord, send me. And so we put our plans and strategy into action. That may well be the end product, but Jesus prefaces it, precedes it, with another step essential before any direct involvement. He urges his disciples, in view of the great need, to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. The New International Version translation is a bit weak here. The word ask, it's much stronger than that. It's the word used of the request of the leper to be made clean by Jesus. It's the word used of the demoniac who asked Jesus not to torture him. It's the word used of the distraught father of the demon-possessed boy who needs the help of Jesus. The New English Bible translates it, beg, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. It is a pleading for other people. It is asking God in view of the desperate need that he might send out workers into his harvest field. And I simply say that such people are in short supply and in my experience are getting in shorter supply as I bury more and more intercessors in this church. People who've lived and prayed and I wonder who's going to fill the gaps that they leave behind. It is the pleading of an Abraham with the Lord for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is asking God to stay his hand of judgment, to intervene in mercy so that souls might be saved and the harvest might be reaped. It is real intercession. When will we stop saying stupid things like, all we can do now is pray, or at least you can pray if you think people can't do anything else. That is the world's idea of prayer. Prayer is the last thing. For the Christian, it is the first thing. The most you can do is pray. The best you can do is pray. The first thing you must do is pray before any human resources have been used. Why? Because it puts the focus in the right place on what God will do, not what we do. Now, there's a great mystery in this if you're following and you're a logical person. If it's the Lord's harvest field and if he wants the harvest to be reaped, why should we need to beg him to send out workers to do it? I don't have a neat answer. If I did, I'd be a famous theologian, which I'm not. But, at the very minimum, he commands us to do it, and so we should. You see, when you pray, if you've been a Christian any length of time, when you pray, there are sometimes things you don't know how to pray. Somebody's ill. How do you pray for them? Is it God's will that they should be healed? You need a job. Should you pray that you get it or not? You need a spouse. I don't know all these questions you don't know. And sometimes you just have to seek God's will. And sometimes he gives you assurance. And sometimes you just don't know. And you say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. But here's something you can be absolutely sure about that God wants you to do and he will always answer. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. No question. You see, it starts at the right point. Independence on God, not ourselves. So why are there so few workers? Is it because, as James puts it in his little letter, chapter 4, I think it's verse 1, you have not because you ask not? Is it still that the Lord still says, as he did in Ezekiel's day, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. Are we prepared to stand in the gap? It's not an easy work. 
It's a lot harder than being a preacher. Take my word for it. And nobody knows that you do it. Because you don't advertise it. While C is going on, there's a group of people who pray right through every week. Who intercede and plead for people. If you want to know what praying is, if you want to pray, come and pray. You may say, I I couldn't lead a group. Can you pray? It's where the real work is done. So what happens when we pray like this for workers? Well, first of all, the Lord sends them out. You see, the result of prayer is that the Lord sends them out. They're not motivated by enthusiasm or guilt feelings or persuaded by eloquence. They're driven by God. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labour. It's a very strong word. It's a Greek word that means literally to... It's a Greek word, ekbalo, it means to throw out, to force out. It's the word used of the Lord Jesus Christ after his baptism. He was driven by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. You see, the workers need to know that they are driven by God or they will down tools at the first sign of difficulty. Workers are sent by God. So Jesus sent out the disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And something else happens when we pray. You see, when we pray, we do not so much change God's mind. Rather, God changes our thinking. As we pray, here's... here's We're coming to a kind of circularity here. But as we pray, so we begin to see things as God sees them, as the Spirit moves in our hearts and minds. And we begin to feel things as God feels them, as we intercede for people in prayer. And we get the special help of the Holy Spirit, and we are changed. So Paul says in that wonderful chapter in Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. don't have time to develop it, but think about it for a moment. The Spirit intercedes for us as we intercede with God. And there's this wonderful, you can't really describe it unless you know what real prayer is. It's God moves in your heart and mind and begins to change your thinking about people and you see things and people as you saw them. That person who really irritates you at work and you just can't stand them and you begin to see them through the eyes of Christ and see them as needy people for whom Christ died. And that person you get angry with, God begins to move in your heart and give you a heart of compassion for them. Because you see them as Jesus sees them and you begin to feel as the Spirit moves within your heart. Now, I can't explain it any better than that, but if you're a Christian... Try intercession. Spend time with God and his people in prayer. See, we don't really believe this. If we did, we'd all be at prayer meetings. We'd all be spending more time in prayer. And I'm not putting guilt on you. I'm just saying it's a simple statement of fact that few people believe in the power of intercessory prayer. You see, I said we started with vision and we end with intercession, but in a very real sense, we start with intercession and we end with intercession, which is encompassed which encompasses all that we do for God, seeing and feeling in some measure, however small, as he does. Otherwise, it is doomed to failure, no matter what the appearances. So here's the third question. Do we see? Do we care? Do we pray? Nearly finished. But let me leave you with a final thought. And here's some speculation. So... I could be right and I could be wrong. We don't know what happened between 
Matthew 9.38 and Matthew 10 verse 1. But let me make a speculative suggestion. I like to think there was a prayer meeting that followed the words of Jesus when he said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send out labourers into his harvest field. And there was only one topic of prayer as these disciples met together and they said, Lord, send out your labourers into the harvest field which is so needy. Was the prayer answered? Well, we can't tell, but let's just read Matthew 10, 1 to 5, and let me make that suggestion. He called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out. Not a very promising bunch of people. Even one who betrayed him. And yet, within a generation, people were saying of them, these men have turned the world upside down. Who knows what a harvest might be reaped by such prayer? Who knows what changes might occur in us and create in us and through us in other people if we responded to the challenge of God's word? Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Beg the Lord of the harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send out workers into his harvest field. That's the big need today. Let's respond to it as we come to God in prayer.